Welcome into Two Foreign Drafts. Austin Gale here with Mike Renner. We have a third guest with us, actually. It's Eric Eager, Dr. Eric Eager of Pro Football Focus, a data scientist here at PFF. We're bringing him on the podcast. Very happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. You guys are my, you know, I've been listening to you guys since the inception, and it's great. I'm glad to have you on. I would say I just realized I don't think I've ever called you doctor in my life. I, I, I actually n- never ask. The funniest thing was my first year teaching, when I, after I got my doctorate, I told the students just to call me by my first name, and that was yeah. a dumb idea. So, like, I just split the difference and just don't tell anybody. Do you prefer to be called doctor? Because no. my, like, cause my, uh, my mom will insist on, so my dad's a doctor, my mom will insist that people call my dad doctor, and he doesn't care about it. Yeah. But one time my ex-girlfriend now asked my mom, what should I call, you know, should I call him Ken, dad, whatever, yeah. she's like, call him doctor. Like, oh, doctor. Man. Yeah. Like, insisted. So, some I, people are intense about it. I think, yeah, I, I'm... So mine's only a PhD, so if I was maybe an, if I was an MD, I'd probably yeah, would maybe prefer it a little bit more. But yeah, it's it's whatever. All right. Well, you know, before we dive into what we want to bring you on for is the analytics mock draft. You and George Tahuri, if you haven't seen it yet, listeners on PFF.com and Adal- analytics mock draft. It's pretty interesting. A ton of different takes than what we've normally seen from draft Twitter and the like, but it is very interesting and also very insightful. Before we dive into that, I would love for you to talk about some of the work that you're doing right now for PFF. We refer to it a ton on the podcast, what you're doing with college to pro projections, building this PFF athleticism score, looking at what matters for each position, what really translates from the college level to the NFL. Yeah, it's it's really trying to take what you guys do right and like try to codify it so like because you know you guys do great work but it's just really tough to scale that right it's really tough to like watch you know somebody play for UConn or play for Houston and try to like level set that with somebody playing for Alabama and and so uh, and then the other thing to do is try to look at sort of quantifying ceilings and floors so what we've done is we've taken you know the play-by-play data the college level try to adjust it for not only who a player is playing, but what they're asked to do. So a player that's asked to do a lot of true pass sets versus a player who's not. And a a player that's playing, uh, you know, uh, for example, the gentleman that's playing for St. John's, it's like, well, how do you even like adjust for that? Because he's playing division three, the caliber players and try to take that and fold it in. And then also build in a thing for how, how important is it to learn on the fly? So Joe Burrow, for example, somebody who struggled his first few years in college, especially last season, and then emerged and had the best season we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. How do you weigh that versus somebody like Baker Mayfield being an entire career being great? And so what we did is you know build some models and, and basically use that to project out a distribution, simulate his career, uh, and, and draw conclusions from that. The interesting thing you mentioned there in that I think what people even struggle at the NFL level is kind of how do you how do you – level set competition because like you said a guy at UConn versus a guy at Alabama a completely different competition you see it even in the NFL I remember when Olivier Vernon got traded it was Olivier Vernon was rushing up against Tyron Smith uh, Jason Peters and Trent Williams six times a year like you can't necessarily that's not going to be com- comparable to a guy rushing in maybe the AFC West where you're facing th- six tackles on the complete opposite end of the spectrum each time a year like a guy just has a much easier job and especially so in college when a guy you know can dominate you know some butt cheeks, you know, comp GSA tackles. <laughs> but in the SEC, maybe he doesn't win at all. And we kind of saw that with a guy like Mike Dana this past year, what goes from Central Michigan 
elite pass rushing grade there goes to Michigan, all of a sudden not so great. So there's also there's a conversation about the different tiers of athlete, different tiers of competition like conference use your UC, USA versus SEC, but also it's there's certain even edge defenders within the SEC. What tackles did you go against? Are these guys that are NFL caliber talents or are they just playing in the SEC, maybe full rides, you know, coach's son and that, and that forth? Well, let's go ahead and dive in to the analytics mock draft. The way I want to do this, we're going to highlight some key picks, some key takeaways, some questions here, but I also want to run through the picks as we go along. Since Cincinnati Bengals at one overall do grab quarterback Joe Burrow of LSU, Washington Redskins quarterback Tua Bailoa of Alabama, Detroit Lions Jeffrey Akuda of Ohio State at three overall, Giants grab Henry Ruggs of Alabama at fourth overall. I know Giants fans aren't thrilled about that one. And at five, you have Miami Dolphins edge defender Chase Young falling all the way to five. You don't see that in a ton of mock drafts. Mike, take it away. What are your key questions here? Well, one, the Tua pick. That one, obviously, if we're, if we're talking about analytics, talking about positional value, like, yes, Tua is going to be like, they're taking the chance on the quarterback is always going to be more valuable. And I kind of brings up an interesting sort of corollary that I want to just throw out there that I had that, that came to me earlier today for all the people, all these Redskins fans who are like, that's never going to happen. They, they will never draft Tua. They don't need a quarterback. They just got Haskins. It, it to me, feels very similar to his rookie year, felt very similar to Mitchell Trubisky. Now, it's not putting him, it's not putting it that on. Haskins whatsoever but at the end of Trubisky's rookie year he had that monster game against the Bengals he had an 89.6 passing grade in that game against the Bengals I think it was like week 14 and you can talk yourself into if a game happens at the end of the year you talk yourself into oh that's who he's going to be next year like it's easy to do that for a rookie but he only had I mean over the course of the season was a not a good passing grade uh, I think it was something like 70 uh, mm-hmm. Haskins like 66.8 this past year both had seven touchdowns, seven interceptions over the course of their rookie season. Both these guys. Yeah. And they, had, they give you this high end. Uh, Haskins had this high end the game against the Giants and the season before he got hurt. 82.2 grade. Like, if you give that towards the end of the year, yes, it's easier to talk yourself into. But that's still such a small, small sample size. And on the whole, it wasn't good. And yeah. until you see it be good, like – Take the chance. Yeah, and that and that was the thing. One of the things we decided not to do was put in trades because I think if you're Washington and you are sold on, on Haskins, trading back is probably a smart choice because yeah. you could get a, a Dolphins team or a team that, uh, you know, a Chargers team or something like that to come, go up and get to a – but if you are stuck with the pick, the right decision to make is to make sure that the chances – so the, the way you sort of think about it, it's sort of like let's say each, each player has a 50-50 chance of being good or bad. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, you know, you have two children. The one-fourth chance you have two girls, one-fourth chance you have two boys, and a one-half chance, one girl, one boy. Yeah. So, like, you limit your – you take your probability, let's say, you know, one – your probability that both quarterbacks are going to be bad is is cut in half by taking a quarterback in the second pick overall. Mm-hmm. And as a franchise, you're trying to rebuild. You, you just – when your quarterbacks are bad, you don't find things out about your other players, right? Like one of the, the most valuable things about quarterbacks like Gardner Minshew or Alex Smith or something is you learn things about players. Like the Chiefs found out that Tyreek Hill was good. They found out Travis Kelsey is a superstar. So they, they found out how, much, how, how high the ceiling is and what they needed out of a quarterback to get to that Super Bowl because they had a quarterback that was good enough to see what the limitations were. Yeah. When your quarterback isn't good enough, like, you know, Brian Fitzpatrick – showed the Dolphins that Devontae Parker's a good wide receiver. If they had Josh Rosen in there, it would not have been good yeah. enough. So, like, when when you're trying to figure things out about your roster, you need quarterback play that'll give you above a certain level, and then if you're lucky, you can get that sort of, like, Mahomes-Wilson sort of 
Andrew Luck kind of like brilliance there. But if you're just trying to get out of like extinction, like you, you significantly increase your chances by taking two shots. Stay, staying on the quarterback conversation, I'm going to tease the rest of the mock draft. Justin Herbert, Jordan Love, Jake Fromm, they do not go in the first round of this mock draft. Do you not see those quarterbacks as first-round caliber players worth that risk in the top 32 picks? I mean, they're just significantly different in our projections. And one of the things that we do, I talked about this a little bit, was we downweigh previous we downweigh data that's further away um so both herbert and love were better players at earlier parts of their career and to us it's like you know what you see most immediate i mean like that's like the most information that quarterback's going to have had more experience that quarterback is going to have have had seen more defense yeah, and so like by the time he gets to his bowl game like we should see like that finished product and not not to say we we downweigh that data so much right like a, a, a game you know three years ago is worth probably like 40 percent of what it's worth you know yesterday but it is w- worth noting that like both of those players got worse you know fundamentally as they went through college and so when we see them they're sort of more of a backup and, and that sort of takes away the calculus if a guy's not even going to start then the difference between a quarterback and a, and, a, and a position player is just so much different uh you know that versus if he's going to start Generally speaking, a quarterback's worth four times as much during the rookie deal as a normal player. Another thing to t- touch on in this top five is you do have Jeffrey Kuda, the cornerback of Ohio State, going to the Detroit Lions at three. We really like that fit. We've mocked that in, uh, to the Detroit Lions in the past. Henry Ruggs at four yeah. to the New York Giants. But both of those players above Chase Young, who falls to the Miami Dolphins at five overall. Talk to me about why Chase Young uh, below Akuda and Ruggs. So Akuda, it's just about positional value and you know, kind of what the Lions would even get out of Chase Young should they take. And we, uh, I wrote an article a couple you know months back about the Detroit just rushed the fewest players in the NFL last season, and yeah. sort of you know by hook or by crook or you know for for better or worse they they failed at it right, but they were trying to go about it the Patriots way by sort of manufacturing pass rush. I don't know they if didn't they, even try, dude. They like yeah. those interior linemen didn't even try on yeah. like steps. It was hard to watch, but and, yeah. And you look at and you looked at like what I wrote last week, which is about like sort of like building up weak ties in your defense, like getting a Cuda along with Justin Coleman, possibly keeping Darius Slay. I, they, they did trade Diggs, so they do need a safety. But, like, kind of you want to build that. If you're going to approach defense that way, you have to build your secondary, and it's going to start with you can't have good third corners if you don't have a good first corner, mm-hmm. right? So uh, th- I think they build there. Um, with Rugs, it was more of the Giants have been sort of near zero wins for so long, and you don't get from three, four wins to seven, eight, nine, ten that it's going to w- take to win the NFC East without either, A, getting a quarterback, or, B, substantially increasing the the – stature of your quarterback and while chase young's a terrific player might be the best player in the draft he doesn't like having a brilliant defense can only take you from like a to f as a quarterback whereas having a receiver that like really can lift you up can take you from a to you know z if, mm-hmm. if, if it really works out there and rugs is just a player you know what do we value we value being able to get open we value playing on the outside um, and, you know, we know in our data that, like, wide-open throws are the most stable thing. So the more wide-open throws you can give Daniel Jones, you can find out more f- more quickly whether he's worth it or not. Also, with Ruggs, he wins the valuable routes. I know you touched on that a little bit. Ruggs wins down the football field, which is vastly more important than I, stuff underneath. I was going to say, are we having, so on our draft board, having uh, Jerry Judy one, uh, C.D. Lamb two, and, and those good ways, probably about five spots ahead of Ruggs, who is number three right now on our draft board. Are we overvaluing sort of completeness? Because I, yes. I think that's why we have why we have Julian Lambs because there's not a route where we're going to like ask them to run that I don't think they can run at a high level. Yeah, think about the way the NFL's changed. I mean, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, 
you know, the Green Bay Packers, they had, you know, Jennings and Driver. And those were their two receivers that yeah. played all the time. And then the third guy, yeah. they, they would get, they would bring a third guy off the bench and he'd play on passing down. So the Vikings was Carter and Moss, right? And now you look at the modern offense and you look at like Kansas City, they play Robinson half the snaps. Uh, they play uh, uh, McCole Hardman half the snaps. Hill doesn't play every snap, right? Mm-hmm. Like you mix and match because there are things that like you're not going to buy a complete receiver and that's why we've always seen like the 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 mantra is that receivers bust in the first round but the reason was is because we were expecting them to be like Mike what Mike Evans was or you know what Randy Moss was or somebody like Julio Jones a complete receiver and those guys just don't come around you look at recent first round receivers it's been more of like they do one thing really well you know, you look at a uh, CJ, you look at the Panthers and their first round draft. Yeah, CJ Moore, more of an underneath kind of crossing route after the catch guy. Calvin Ridley, who we all mocked ahead of him, was more of a down the field player, and the Falcons could use that. And, mm-hmm. and it's sort of that's why like the fit sort of matters a little bit more. And we, as you said, I think overvalue completeness because we want completeness because we know it's going to be scheme independent. But if you craft a scheme for your players, it works. So would Tyreek Hill then be the most? With the analytics say that is the most valuable wide receiver in terms of what he brings to the table in the NFL? I mean, I think so in the sense that he's not only very good at going down the field and getting open. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of Andy Reid, yeah. too. But he's also good at contested catches. I mean, mm-hmm. you watch the, I watched the Vikings game a couple of days ago, and it, like he just bodied Trey, uh, Trey Waynes a few times. His catch rate is, and contested catch ability is very underrated. He's seen as the yeah. speed guy, the cheetah, but he can do a lot of things with the ball in the air, especially when, when contested. But ult- yeah, ultimately, just getting open is the, is the biggest deal because not only from the receiver's perspective, from the quarterback's perspective, if, if you know, you, that Ryan Fitzpatrick here with the Jets where it was all contested catches, right? It, it immediately regresses Josh McCown with the Bears with uh, Jeffrey and, uh, and Brandon Marshall, same thing. If you give your quarterback a lot of open looks and he still can't compete, then you know he's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And you take away a lot of that uncertainty. And that's really what we're trying to do with these young quarterbacks is we're trying to fail quickly. And, and if the guy doesn't fail, then we just, you know, then we move on with him and, yep. and, we, and we work with him. If he does fail, then we draft another guy. Let's run through the next five picks here. At six overall, Los Angeles Chargers grabbed Tristan Wirfs of Iowa, the first tackle off the board in the analytics mock draft. Seven, Carolina Panthers grabbed Playmaker. I like how you added Playmaker. No specific position for him. Isaiah Simmons of Clemson. Eight, Arizona Cardinals grabbed Jerry Judy of Alabama. Nine, Jacksonville Jaguars tackle Andrew Thomas of Georgia. And ten, Josh Jones of Houston going to the Cleveland Browns. Mike, I know you're either a fan of or questioning Tristan Wirfs as the first tackle off the board. What's your take there? I'm just curious where that the tackle rankings. Just, I guess, walk us through those top three because we'll also get to the fact that Jedrick Wills, Mackay Becton, mocked in the yeah. top ten of most drafts, aren't even in the first round. Here. Yeah, I think, so. a, I think a lot of it is, like, when we've had questions about this, it, it very much is, is, like, how you finished. And then and then sort of stuff that, for me, is sort of black boxy, which is throwing the data in and saying what is the most valuable kind of stuff and then seeing what comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that Worfs, you know, he tested extremely well at the Combine. In, in places that matter, I mean, I think his bench press wasn't as good, but again, that doesn't hasn't really translated lately to, to effectiveness. Thomas did not have as good of a, a of a combine, so I wrote the article like pre combine. He was our highest you mm-hmm. know uh, graded prospect there, but he moved down one. Um, and there are other things like so you know for example with some of these guys we do take you guys' opinion into consideration so there are going to be you know the Ben Barch you know the guy from uh, Saint Saint John's, John's yeah. like he he does flash in some of these things but we do have to say okay well this is a special consideration we won't have him go number one because he's yeah. not you know good enough yet it probably 
Um, but yeah, it's it's part the math, part the you know sort of like adjusted play by play data, and then partly sort of whether or not that ground truth to what you guys are saying. All right, next five picks here: New York Jets. They grab C.D. Lamb, wide receiver of Oklahoma, Las Vegas Raiders, cornerback Christian Fulton of LSU. Thirteen Colts grab wide receiver Lavisca Chenault of Colorado. Fourteen Tampa Bay Buccaneers safety Grant Delpit of LSU. And at fifteen, and this is where I have a question: Denver Broncos grab wide receiver Justin Jefferson of LSU over a guy like Jalen. Of TCU and Denzel mm-hmm. Mims of Baylor. My opinion is Justin Jefferson projects as a slot receiver at the next level. Yes, he had a ton of production at LSU, but does he win the valuable routes? Why do you see Justin Jefferson up here above those other guys? Well, I think when you're looking at the Broncos, it's sort of more of a low, low variance pick. And when you have a when you have a quarterback like Drew Locke, I think you need to sort of either through free agency or in this case through the draft you need to you have Cortland Sutton as the guy that wins the valuable routes and then you have you know his statistical comp was Devontae Adams so you go and you have a guy who's sort of really effective as you said slot sort of underneath like high catch rate low yards per catch relatively speaking and then you combine him you know Noah fans sort of a, a speed tight end and then you have Cortland Sutton you're trying to build that offense around Drew Locke and, again, try to find out whether or not he can play after five starts in the NFL. LaVisca Chenault, too, the Colorado wide receiver going 13 to the Colts. Some people are off this guy as a first-rounder after a troubling combine where an injury kind of popped up, ran a 4.59 40-yard dash, an injury-hampered 4.59 40-yard dash. Where are you right now with LaVisca Chenault, another guy that, not a polished route runner, didn't win a ton deep down the football field, but good with the ball in his hands? Yeah, I mean, his statistical comp was Robert Woods, which I think, is not a football comp in the sense that Robert Woods is a very polished route runner. He gets open quite yeah, a bit. Not a big athlete either. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, you look at that, and, and again, that offense, as long as T.Y. Hilton's there, takes the top off of the defense, they have a pretty good tight end in Jack Doyle, and, it, and it, whomever they have at quarterback I think is going to benefit from having a guy who's sort of like a – uh, you know, a, a possession type receiver on top of that. They really struggle with that this year with, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Zach Pascal. And, you know, once they had an injury to, you know, the receiver position, Paris Campbell didn't really play the way that they wanted him to. So I think he sort of rounds out that offense a little bit. That was kind of an underrated thing about Chenault, though. He was really good in contested situations over his career. Like, yeah. he has good hands, attacks the ball well. Uh, everyone thinks of him as this playmaker, but like when there were 50 50 balls, he was they, very good. And the those. Colts haven't really had that player at wide receiver. Yeah. For a long time, I mean, they've. And it's not Paris by, Campbell. That, you know, that's yeah. not Paris Campbell whatsoever. So. They've gotten by with Hilton being a down the field player, and you know, some kind of like Dontrell Inman, and like guys mm-hmm. who are kind of scrubs, kind of playing that sort of underneath. Well, they, role. they wanted Funchess, but then he got hurt. Right. So uh, whatever and, happens and, to him, I don't know. But and and Chenault, sort of a, a from what I can tell, a sort of a smaller version of what that you know kind yeah. of is, where the bigger body and, and you know some physicality there. But I think he offers more than Funchess would. I was looking at some uh, some data recently. Lavisca Chenault over the past two years does have the high highest contested catch percentage of any of the kind of top 25 23 receivers on pff's latest draft board which is impressive and also what i was also looking at though 40 percent or no over over uh 60 percent of his receptions and receiving yards came within five yards of the line of scrimmage which i found interesting and like thinking about can you win the valuable routes down the football field i think is always important with these receiver prospects yeah and and in the case of Indianapolis, depending on who they go with, can does it? Do you need somebody who's able to get those sort of yards after the catch? Because if your quarterback's Jacoby Brissett, he's not going to be able to be as brilliant down the field. And yeah. so, even if you have somebody that can, which get- is something they probably tried to do with Paris Campbell, but he's kind of fallen flat at least out of the gate. I think Lavisca Chenault is in a different tier wide receiver compared to Paris Campbell. Let's dive to the next five picks here: Atlanta Falcons cornerback Trayvon Diggs of Alabama, seventeen. Dallas Cowboys grab their safety, but it's not the one everyone's been mocking. It's safety Antoine Winfield Jr. 
Jr. of Minnesota. Then you have cornerback C.J. Henderson of Florida going to the Dolphins at 18. The Las Vegas Raiders back again at number 19, grabbing wide receiver Jalen Rager. And at 20, Jacksonville Jaguars tight end Hunter Bryant of Washington. We are not high on this tight end class. I really want to start there. We don't see a top 60 player. PFF's latest draft board doesn't see a top 60 player at tight end. You have Hunter Bryant going 20 to Jacksonville. What's your opinion of Bryant and this tight end class overall? Yeah, I mean, last season, Jacksonville was, the I think, the most mocked team for uh, TJ Hawkinson at seven last Mm -hmm. year and, you know, ended up going in a different direction. Uh, for me, I, you know, when I look at this, we you had the highest catch rate projected of any tight end. Um, you know, still decent yards after the catch, despite that. Um, you know, from it, just a statistical comp, it looked pretty good. And then from the Jaguars' perspective, you have DJ Chark sort of as an all-around receiver that's pretty good. You have Chris Conley, who's kind of a probably number two, number three receiver in the NFL. You have Gardner Minshew, who's got kind of a noodle. You know, definitely this a is, noodle. This they they of, could use a tight end. Like tight end would be a great pick for them at some point. Yeah, I so, just. Yeah, And that's kind of where we stood and we're saying, you know, tight end catches are the most valuable catches, you know, from an EPA perspective. So, you know, even though he might, yeah, he might not be a first round prospect to many, if you get him and he hits, it's probably going to be valuable to your team because you can sort of, you, you can manufacture value throwing the ball to tight end, especially when he's not your primary player, obviously with they have Chark. Mike, I know you wanted to discuss Antoine Winfield Jr. to Dallas. So Antoine Winfield Jr., 17 to Dallas, no Xavier McKinney in the first round at all. So Yeah, Xavier Xavier McKinney, actually, when we look at playmaker rate, so we were Mm -hmm. looking at sort of percentage of plays where you're the primary or secondary target, percentage of plays you get your hands on. Mm -hmm. McKinley was one of the the lower guys. And so, and Winfield was one of the higher guys. And he also added to that, you know, obviously, much like his dad, like an ability to rush the passer, an ability to make tackles and space in the run game. Dallas has struggled at that position with sort of Jeff, you know, uh, even at nickel with Anthony Brown. It's sort of that interior defensive Mm -hmm. back position. Safety is really a good spot for them to go. Um, and, And Winfield sort of, after you look at Delpit, who had a down final season at LSU but still projected pretty well for us, Winfield looked really good from his perspective of, yeah, getting his hands on the football, make, you know, and McKinley just simply didn't. So we, that's where we went McKinney. with Winfield ahead. McKinney. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but let's run through the next five picks here. I, I, I kind of with you, though. Xavier McKinney does a lot of things well, but if you were going to look at something like playmaker rate or, or impact plays, I, I think Antoine Winfield Jr. definitely beats him out in that regard. 21, Philadelphia Eagles grab wide receiver Denzel Mims of Baylor. I think a lot of Eagles fans would be happy with that, especially after his combine results. Buffalo Bills tackle Ezra Cleveland of Boise State, a riser late in the process after an outstanding combine. I was hearing that some analytics teams or some analytics departments with the NFL have said he had a better combine than any offensive lineman they've seen in recent history. So very interesting with Ezra Cleveland. 23, New England Patriots tight end Albert Okui Bunam of Mizzou, who also ran a blazing 40, 24 wide receiver Chase Claypool of Notre Dame. And I love George Tahiri's write up here. No one loves the idea of of an offensive weapon more than Sean Payton. I think Chase Claypool is exactly that at 25. Taysom Hill light. Taysom Hill light. Taysom, uh, at 25, Minnesota Vikings grab safety, Ashton Davis, who really hasn't had an opportunity in this pre-draft process to elevate his stock, yeah. sat out of the senior bowl with a groin injury, and then, again, was not able to participate at the combine due to similar injury. This has been tough for him, but we did really love his tape at Cal. His grading was great. I think he's a fast player, former track athlete. Interesting at 25. Let's talk Chase Claypool, though. No. Let's talk Albert L. Okay. What the hell's he doing at 23 here? <laughs> so, so for us, we looked at the New England Sorry. Patriots and thought to ourselves, you know, what, what was missing from that offense? And yeah. I think most people look at Gronk 
as a big physical tight end, which he is. I mean, mm-hmm. he was one of the best blockers in the NFL, but he was a one. He was their best deep threat in many in many circumstances. So now, while Albert O is not going to probably bring up, you know take down the, as many catches in the passing game. Like, he's probably able to sort of stretch that field the same way like somebody like Jared Cook does for New Orleans. Yeah. And, you know, that— off- I mean, he's faster than all their wideouts, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Seems, so. <laughs> and, and, you know, that the New Orleans offense, when you look at how Jared Cook opens it up for the inside receivers like Michael Thomas, like, New England's not going to generate outside value out of thin air, right? Mm-hmm. So they're either going to have to use—they probably end up using this pick on a wide receiver in some way, shape, or form, whether they send it over here to the Bengals or to Minnesota for Stephon Diggs, probably not in that case. But if they don't, like this, I, I do think getting a tight end that can sort of give you some versatility offensively would really help them with what they're working with should Brady return. All right, can we talk right, Chase Claypool, Claypool now? Yeah. All right, let's talk Chase Claypool. Yeah. I, I do agree with George taking here. He is an offensive weapon. He can be played a tight end, kind of a move tight end, or he could play even wide receiver with how well he tested. With Chase Claypool going to the Saints, I mean, what do you see from a projection standpoint for Chase Claypool, and how do you see him in this receiver class? Well, this was one that we had to – we took a couple takes on because, you know, New Orleans really is missing that outside receiver that can go down the field, a la what Ted Ginn should be. And, and, <laughs> and he doesn't. And their top wide receiver, I think Ginn was at 450 yards or something. They really do need an outside receiver. And I don't think Claypool. I don't know if Breeze is hitting them, though, anymore. I don't <laughs> know if that's. Like, really? Breeze. Yeah. So, like, I'm just. The, the arm is toast. Yeah. So, like is, so is this a. And that's the, that's the question mark. So we eventually landed here because. He would probably run the routes that Breeze would prefer yeah. to throw, and if you can get a couple people that are able to get open underneath, then it takes a little bit of pressure off of Thomas. And you know, New Orleans' biggest problem is during a playoff run, you're not able to do what you can do in a 13 and three regular season, which is sort of be you know cross the street a million times on the way to the end zone without yes, getting hit. They have to do it. it in the playoffs that hurt them because they played a defense that was good enough to like stop them from crossing the street a few times and they lose. And even if they would have beat Minnesota, they probably lose an, on the way there because their offense yeah. isn't a big play offense. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, hit, they need a big play guy. They need a big play guy. And he, you know, I, I think Claypool offers them that at least, uh, you know, projectedly. I am going to, it is going to be curious to see where Claypool ends up because if you talk to me, if you just said a tight end who runs a four, four, two with 40 inch vertical, like, that's a first round tight end, like pretty yeah. much like any year, like a guy who and who had over a thousand yards in college last year. Mm-hmm. Like that's a first round player for most years, but he's such an interesting case because yeah, I mean he didn't play tight end in college. Um, he's like getting towards tight end size, but still isn't quite there. Uh, it is going to be intriguing to see where the NFL sees. And they, and I think they, that's where this is really where. And I, Mike hates when I bring this up, but I do think the interview process is very important for Chase Claypool. What is his direction? What is his willingness to add weight and play tight end at the next level? Well, he accidentally drank water. Is what yeah, he said. He said he got up to two hundred thirty-eight pounds or two thirty-nine, like or whatever it was. Like, you're, which, an, you're an elite athlete. You didn't accidentally drink too much water and gain ten. He's pounds. like, yeah, I, I added nine pounds between the Senior Bowl and Combine. I just drank a little bit too much water. It's like, how do you make that mistake? I mean, you, don't, you, you have to. Everything has to be intent when you're going Sometimes to the combine. Actually, only drink too much beer, but that's like yeah. yeah. But that do, if he's not a good enough tight end, tight end, does that really matter though? Because in the NFL, I mean, like it's not like Jared Cook is lining up and, and down blocking six eyes and reaching sevens. Well, it's more like how defenses are going to treat you. Yeah, you know, yeah. You're, is he going to be taking on yeah. corners or is he going to be taking on linebackers and safeties? Because I think if he's taking on corners, it's going to be difficult for him to have value in the NFL. But if he is seeing more more linebackers and safeties. Chase Claypool wins a lot of those matchups, in my opinion. But in an offense where he's required to be a secondary player, those corners and safeties even that he's taking on are True. Sort of weaker links on the defense. Yeah. And so 
I don't know. I agree that it's it's a tough projection, but ultimately, like, you know, Sean Payton's probably going to be able to get something out of him if he gets him at, at that spot. All right, let's run through the last seven picks here and some takeaways. 26, Miami Dolphins cornerback Jeff Gladney of TCU. Seattle takes cornerback Cameron Dancer, Mississippi State. 4-6, 40 time. I don't care. We're taking him at 27. Uh, Baltimore Ravens at 28, Edge Curtis Weaver. Tennessee Titans grab Jack Driscoll of Auburn. I know Mike likes this guy. I don't know if he likes, mm. likes him in the first round, likes but uh, 29, Tennessee Titans, Jack Driscoll of Auburn. 30 Green Bay Packers take Matt Pert of UConn. And remember, this is over Mekhi Becton. This is over Jedrick Wills of Alabama. Interesting stuff at the back end of the first round. 31 San Francisco 49ers wide receiver Tyler Johnson of Minnesota. A polarizing player, a guy we had on the podcast last week. Great dude. Really good head on his shoulders. I think it's going to be interesting to see where the NFL views him. He was the highest graded receiver in college football in 2019. It was very high in, PFF, in PFF's eyes. And number 32 probably the hottest take of this entire mock. <laughs> Linebacker Davion Taylor of Colorado for those of you who don't know, the background on Davion Taylor is that he was not allowed to play high school football due to religious reasons. He could practice all week, but he could not play on Friday nights after the sunset. Didn't get an opportunity to play in more than one game in a season until Juco ends up landing with Colorado. A very raw player, has a good track background, has some track athleticism. However, Davion Taylor, first rounder, I got to start there. What do you see in him? Well, the Chiefs won on defense this year by asking their linebackers to do fundamentally different things than they did the season ago. Uh, Anthony Hitchens was signed five years, $45 million, asked to be a Derek Johnson player, and he failed miserably. And, you know, he's still more dead money to cut than he is to keep type of thing. So they they took off of his plate the passing downs last year and asked undrafted player Ben Neiman out of Iowa to basically blitz on late downs. And, you know, he did get a huge pressure on Garoppolo in the Super Bowl that led to the punt that led to the go-ahead touchdown. But you got to think that Kansas City wants a guy like who's more athletic that can do, that can cover, but it can also rush the passer. And we look at him, he's third, you know, he had the second highest projected playmaker rate, which is, again, getting your hands on the football in the passing game behind Isaiah Simmons for linebackers. Wow. And again, a top, I can't remember, two or three pass rush win rate uh, for that position as well. So you're just looking at an athlete here on a Chiefs defense that, let's be honest, got by with a lot of like mid-tier talent at best a season ago. You throw him in there, you put in the, you increase the talent pool quite a bit, and and it's a Chiefs team that doesn't have a ton of needs. I mean, at this point, wide receivers pick pretty thin. Uh, you know, they could use a tackle, you know, or, or you know, swings, you know, one of their tackles into guard or something like that. We weren't going to take a guard in the first round, so you know, the <laughs> Muti, Muti was not going to go here to Kansas it's City. Locked. So it's like, locked. but but uh, so we went with Davion Taylor for that athleticism. So over, what were his comparables to Kenneth Murray, Patrick Queen, two guys who, Kenneth Murray, Oklahoma linebacker, Mm -hmm. Patrick Queen, LSU linebacker, two guys who seem like first-round locks like IRL at this point. Yeah, Yeah, so it was more of just like what we valued. So, you know, players closer to the football, we're we're going to value kind of versatility and and stuff like that. So So Claypool, for example, closer to the football, but, you know, wide receiver, tight end sort of versatility. Uh, obviously, Isaiah Simmons, who although he falls to seven for us, is a similar thing. Like he can play deep as you as you shown, uh, but he can rush the pass. Or he can also play a traditional linebacker role. Taylor's sort of in that realm as well. Where you know if you if you if he gets stuck on a slot receiver in coverage because of a you know something the 49ers are doing with motion, like he's not a complete 
wasted space mm-hmm. out there. And, and and that's kind of what we value for interior players. To bring up the 49ers, I mean, what they've done with Drake Greenlaw, Fred Warner, two athletes at off-ball linebackers, is really yeah. impressive. And I think you're going to see more and more of these teams not covet, you know, two-down rush stuffers. We've talked about it on previous podcasts, but finding athletes at that position is so much more important in today's NFL. Well, and the smart teams can get after you. So, for example, they tried their best, um, you know, Kwan Alexander to keep him off the field in the Super Bowl. He only played in four in the 4-3 base, and he was on the field for 21 snaps, and the Chiefs made him miss four tackles on those 21 snaps in space. So, like, the, the issue with defense is as much as you try to hide your weaknesses, they're going to be exploited by the best offensive minds. And so if you can have players that do more things, right, like – Tyron Matthew can play safety, he can play in the box, he can play in the slot, which means if you have a weaker player, you can focus him only where he's good and let the brilliant players sort of fill in those gaps. The more of those players that have that versatility that can play closer to the ball but also out wide, they're not a complete disaster, I think helps your defense. Let's get back to the offensive tackle class before we let you go here. You have at 29 the Tennessee Titans taking Jack Driscoll of Auburn and then Matt Pert of UConn going to the Green Bay Packers at 30. I want to start with Pert. Start with Pert. Obviously, both, again, both or Pert? I've heard someone say Pert before. I'll say Pert if you want me to. It's, like, it's, like, it's like a pear with a T. Yeah. I pear. thought it was Pert. Pert. Yeah. Whatever. Maybe. Whatever it may be. Jack Driscoll, Pert, both going above Mekhi Becton and Jedrick Wills. Pert, though, I will say, if someone's on your side, it's it's Bill Belichick. Because when we went to the Senior Bowl, this guy had binoculars on this guy from like 10 feet away. He was watching like a hawk on Matt Pert. I think he's high on him. But talk me through Jack Driscoll, Matt Pert, where they are in your projections right now. I mean, Pert, it's just like, I mean, being six foot seven. Not losing it's the arm and, length, right? Yeah, it's not thirty-six and five inch yeah. arms, the longest arms combine. It's That's, not, those are some wings. Yeah, and it's not losing in pass protection, right? And yeah. Belichick's smart enough to know that, like, okay, you look at the high end with these guys, right? So if you get a guy and he ends up being Tyron Smith, awesome. If he doesn't end up being Tyron Smith, you can turn him into uh, you can turn him into every single tackle that's been on that team for the last like five years where you like, you know, you, you, you throw the ball quickly, you get really good statistics for him on in our system and then you trade him or or you let him go and you get a comp. Like Trent Brown, like, like Trent, Cameron Fleming, like all these other guys. Exactly. And so like Pert, you know, he's shown that like in the, you know, in good circumstances, he can be good and in bad circumstances, he can hold up because he only gave up seven pressures last year. So like mm-hmm. that's again, somebody I think Belichick sees like you have the tools to be elite, right? And then you combine that with decent tape and and that and you know that's a player that you can sort of win with um you know with driscoll it, it was one of those things where again just play for play he just won more than you would expect pass protection begets pass yeah. protection sort yeah of thing like and, if you're good at pass protection usually you're gonna be good at the next level yeah. <laughs> and 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 again after you throw so auburn's not one of those teams that does creative things offensively yeah you know so so when mm. you know you watch their film and like i'm not gonna say they're like they're a pro style offense or whatever, but they're not doing things that like make it super easy. Like they're not yeah, running exactly. as many they're RPOs or anything. So when you look at his statistics, it's more a true representation of the kind of player he could be, uh, and that's kind of you know where you know where he wins in terms of this ranking. And then where does the data stand or analytics in terms of projection stand in terms of a guy like Driscoll who three straight years? He's had very good pass yeah. blocking grades. Like it's a long, it's a breadth of work. Whereas a guy two like, years at UMass, one year at Auburn. Two years at Auburn. Two, two years, years at UMass. Okay. Two years of both. But, yeah, one of the years at UMass, they did really well in pass protection. Transfers to Auburn, two great years there in terms of pass protection. Does that get valued more than, say, a guy like Kai Becton, who two years at Louisville, obviously he was kind of screwed by the situation there, but not good, and then one year where he all of a sudden takes a jump, a jump forward? Like, what is that? How does the number say on that? Yeah, I mean, Becton will get – he'll in – in the circumstances we have it, Becton will be better off – 
than he would be if we treated every snap he ever had in college equally, obviously, because we're going to regress sort of the down way previous years because, again, like guys develop and all that kind of stuff. But even then, like it's still it's still factored in there to a point where being consistent for that entire time matters, too. Yeah. Uh, And so like that that could break ties. I mean, to ask specifically, I'd have to go back and actually look at sort of where, you know, where his issues were. But um, uh, but yeah, that's where that's why Driscoll would would probably you know be higher rated because he had more consistency. Well, fans are going to go ballistic over this mock draft. If you haven't read it yet, go to PF Not the worst mock ever, but. It's it's probably got a comment or two that's calling it the worst (laughs) mock ever. Every mock draft has those comments. But I think fans are going to be upset, but I do think it offers a ton of insight on this class on positional value. I think if you want to learn more about positional value and receivers that win the valuable routes, go read the mock draft on PFF.com from Eric Eager and George Chahuri. That's going to do it for the 2 for 1 Draft podcast on YouTube. However, if you are listening to the audio version, we are going to cut to now an interview with Travis Gibson of Tulsa, the edge defender. Mike, before we cut to the interview, give us your take on Travis Gibson, what you see in him. He's a bendy dude. Uh, some of the best bet of any edge fit in this class. And like ideal build, that sort of thing. And the thing I love about him is he was in a, a bad role to rush the pass this year at Tulsa. He, he was playing like a four. 100%. He was playing a four-eye, uh, four technique. So he's head up over offensive tackles at 260 pounds, like 265 pounds. It's not, it's not where he's going to be playing in the NFL. He's going to be playing off the edge. And he's still beating these dudes. He's, you know, he's contain rushing pretty much every time he can't go with an inside move because or else he'd break contain with only three man rushes and still winning on these contain rushes i'd suggest watching the michigan state game uh if you can watch any tape on him if you can find that on youtube or something he you know hands it to their offensive tackles there probably the best competition he faced all year obviously at tulsa hands them a handful of times I, i just think he has the ability to win the edge and kind of a guy whose best football is ahead of him you know like you see the things that you see from top notch edge defenders in the nfl so i think already graded well at an unfavorable position with athletic tools, I think there's a lot to work with there. So he's a top 100 player on our board. A top 100 player in the interview. We do ask about his usage. We ask about that Michigan State game. We ask how he sees going into the NFL, what he needs to get better. Very good interview with Travis Gibson. And thanks again, Eric Eager, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. We're going to get you back on closer to April's draft. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's let's kick it off with a little bit of your background and how you started in football. I'd I'd love to start there. Uh, I mean, I started off in Little League, man. I've been playing since flag football since I was about five years old. Um, gradually, you know, just fell deeper in love with the game as time went by. Ended up going to Cedar Hill High School and was fortunate enough to win a state championship with that team. Thank God. And um, just kept it going, man. Nice, man. Ended up at Tulsa. What positions did you play in high school? I did outside linebacker, middle linebacker, and defensive end. Oh, no offense? No two-way player? Nah, no offense, man. We had a lot of weapons. Gotcha. So I don't think they needed me on offense, honestly. Nice, man. And so talk to me more about the recruiting process. What kind of offers did you have? What interest did you have from you know, schools around the country? Um, I mean, the crazy thing is, which people probably don't know, I only came out with one offer. No Division Two offers, only one Division One, which was Tulsa, of course. And, I mean, I think that was more because at a young – well, at a young age of only 17, turning 18 in college, I only weighed about 200 pounds, oh, 205 wow. at the – yeah, 205 at the most. So, you know, I think a lot of teams didn't think that I would be able to put on the weight or I wouldn't be able to, you know, fill out my body frame. Mm-hmm. And – 
I mean, it just took a lot of hard work and whatnot. But, I mean, I did have interest from a lot of Big 12 schools, a lot of, you know, SEC schools, but nobody ever pulled the trigger. So Yeah. And with Tulsa, with Tulsa, did they reach out to you or were you reaching out to them? How did that process work? I think it was sort of a mutual thing. They reached out to me, and then I ended up visiting their campus for junior day. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I got offered the scholarship. And like I said, that was my last one, so first and last. There you go, man. Well, let, let's go ahead and dive more into your, your play at Tulsa. I think looking at you as an edge defender in this class, I, I think there are a lot of the times where you're playing inside the tackles, not necessarily outside the tackles, but we kind of see you you know, better performing outside the tackles. From a usage standpoint, where do you see yourself playing in the NFL? Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I think I like to see myself on the outside, more of a five technique. Um, I mean, I feel like that just sort of puts me on the island with guys. Um, we ran, we mainly ran three three five, which was a three man front. So most of the time, I was dealing with two people. If I did beat the tackle, the guard would come and help out. Um, a lot of double teams, but I think if I end up in a four man front. Or even a three-man front still, but more primarily on the outside, I think that'll help, you know, really show my game to to its max potential. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the differences in that alignment, because I think it is important talking about playing just inside the tackle or even, like, outside shoulder of the guard versus playing more, like you said, like on an island versus an edge defender. I think what you're doing at the snap, what you're keying on is a lot different. So, you know, I would love to hear your take on the difference between playing inside, like where you were, or even outside. The difference is it's really a – I would say it's a lot of differences, but at the same time, man, defensive line is defensive line. So typically on the inside, playing as a three technique or a four technique, you know, you do have more to worry about as compared to a five, like we said earlier, being on the island. Um, in a three technique, you typically focus more on the guard, which are more heavier guys than the tackles, obviously less athletic depending on who you're scouting. But – um I mean, you can you can have the tackle and the guard crack down on you, mm-hmm. or in a five technique, you know you only have to worry about the tackle. So it's really just the load of pressure, I guess you would say. Um, you know, playing in that three technique, you can sort of penetrate more. You know, instead of having to take the edge, you know, if the guard pulls, you can get in his hip pocket, get in the backfield. But, I mean, on the five technique, you really just have to dominate your guy and hope that the play call comes to your side most of the time. And talking to other edge defenders, they talk about like kind of a pre-snap pass rush plan. I mean, from you specifically, when you're playing inside, that pass rush plan has got to be so much different than when you are playing five technique. And I, I think more experience, more opportunities at five te- technique, you're going to have a be- you know better opportunities to put together that pass rush plan. In a given game week, talk to me about preparation, what you do from a film study standpoint to prepare for your opponent. You know, I usually look at film. I try to look at it at least three or four times before my game day. Um, I usually look at down and distance, pass rush tendencies, primarily the offensive line. Um, you know, who they, who do they like to go to on third and fourth downs? My bad. Somebody, my coach was calling me. You're good, man. <laughs> but, um... Usually, like, who do they go to on third and fourth downs? You know, do they like to run the screens with third and five plus? Do they like to run the tunnel screens, wide receiver screens? Um, 
really how far is the or how deep is the quarterback dropping on his drop passes? Is he, you know, dropping six and then stepping up two? Because, I mean, all of that plays a difference in the game plan, of course. And, um, I mean, a lot of the greats that I've spoken to, they say not to bring a game plan into the game, but more just take what they give you. Yeah, but I think I think um, I think it can sort of go both ways, you know. I think that you study those tendencies of the offense, and that will definitely give you a, a good heads up. Do you do you do a ton of like self study? Do you watch your own film and try and critique that? Oh yeah, most definitely. I I probably do that if not more than just the same as much as me critiquing other guys on the offense. Just um. You know, seeing if if I'm on a stunt, if I'm going inside, am I tipping it off by, you know, tilting my hips a certain way? Is my butt higher or lower when I'm ripping different gaps or if I'm taking off in pass rush? And I think the main thing is just trying to stay unpredictable. Yeah. You know, just trying to make sure I look the same in pretty much every position. And, and so looking at the NFL or talking with the NFL teams at the combine, what was some of the feedback they gave you both positive and negative? What did they like about your game? What do you think they saw that you could improve on in the NFL? Um, I think they like my style of play, my motor, you know, playing relentless. I think they said that I can work on my flexibility a little bit more and, um, you know, just striking with my hands, getting a better strike. But I mean, I think everybody has something to work on. So it was real good to get those, different perspectives, especially from the, that level of education and football. I think that helped a lot. Did teams did, did teams talk about where they wanted to play you at the next level? Did any of them want you to add weight, maybe play more of an interior role? Or did a lot of teams see you as kind of this edge defender outside type of guy? I think a lot of teams see me as a edge guy, you know, if not outside linebacker. That's what I heard uh, pretty often. But as far as gaining weight or losing weight, I think 260 is a pretty good weight and I honestly haven't heard much about gaining weight or losing weight, if anything at all. Yeah, I think get, I'm at a getting in at 260. Did you have to kind of beef up to that weight, or were you cutting to get down to 260? The so the heaviest I ever got was 268. Okay, and that was my junior year spring, so almost two years ago. Waffle House trips, um, or what, what's the diet plan there? <laughs> Man, I was just <laughs> peanut butter jellies, um, milkshakes, protein shakes. Do it. You know, hitting the weights after heavy meals. Yeah, that stuff helped put on muscle. But I was more concerned about my film my senior year. Mm-hmm. So I decided to lose weight. I got down to about 260 going into fall camp. And then I lost about another five or four pounds. So I ended up playing my senior year at about 255. So I don't think controlling my weight is necessarily a, a hard thing for me to do, honestly. Nice man. Well, I'd like to finish with this. Is there is there a player in the NFL that you or players in the NFL that you watch a lot of tape on to kind of emulate your game after, learn from, etc.? I would say if not Von Miller, then Khalil Mack. I try to watch a lot of the greats, man, just because what I notice about them is they can play the run and rush the passer. Yep. And I mean that's sort of what I hang my hat on, trying to do both. And because I mean, in order to get to third down, you got to go through first or second. So. I try to watch guys like that who can do both and who play relentless with a nice chip on their shoulder. Very good, man. Well, I really appreciate the time, and uh, best of luck moving forward. Appreciate you a lot, man. Have a good one. All right, you too. Bye.